Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Keith Scully, co-founder of Silverback Films, about new Netflix series David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, and the interconnection between COVID-19 and the increasingly urgent environmental message in natural history programming. And Johnny Slow and Adeline Ramage Rooney, co-founders of US Indie 8 Hours Television, discuss their US adaptation of Belgian factual format Emergency Call for ABC. Keith Scully is co-founder of UK blue chip factual producer Silverback Films and a former veteran of the BBC's Natural History Unit. Ahead of the launch of the company's latest Netflix series, David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet, he spoke with Clive Whittingham about a career working with the legendary presenter, the interconnection between COVID-19 and the increasingly urgent environmental message in natural history programming, the future of the BBC and the challenges of making wildlife shows amid the ongoing pandemic. My name's Keith Scully. I'm one of the directors of Silverback Films, and we're a a company that specialises in making, I'd say, sort of high-end natural history film for cinema and television. A lot of work with with David Attenborough down the years you're you're probably best known for. I mean, that that must be incredible to work with just a living legend like that. Absolutely. And I was with the BBC for a long time, uh, most of my career. And uh, I first met David when I was 24. He's a little bit older. (laughs) and um, have worked with him ever since so right back from the early 80s and um, yeah it's been a huge privilege. There's a couple of projects uh, that I want to get into with you but Netflix involved in both one is uh, Our Planet is Too Big to Fail and another one is uh, David Attenborough A Life on Our Planet. Can you tell us a little bit about those two projects um, first of all what what have we got to look forward to in those? Well they they both spun off we, we did a big landmark for Netflix called Our Planet and um at the end, which we partnered with WWF um, to make that series. And the idea of the Our Planet series was that we were going to bring environmental stories into a popular uh, natural history series. And I think we succeeded in doing that. But at the end of that process, as we launched the series, we we ended up being taken down all sorts of different roads. We went to um, Davos, the World Economic Forum, with David Attenborough and Prince William there interviewed David. And we we were presenting suddenly natural history to this, the you know, the, the lion's den of the finance world. And we then went on to the IMF and World Bank and so on and so forth. And it, after that, we were asked, well, WF were asked, could we do a special film for the finance sector? Because what is really exciting now is that the finance sector is really getting to grips with the environmental crisis. And actually, if you're going to change this thing, if you're going to turn things around, those are the people who can do it. And uh, how people invest their money will end up changing the world and so um, we made this special film Our Planet Too Big to Fail um, which 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 is being really specifically shown to the finance sector. The other spin-off that happened was David Attenborough A Life on Our Planet. As we were making the Our Planet series um, David narrated that and we we, we suddenly realised that there was this huge story um, about David's life that he's the only person probably on our planet. He's Well he's seen more of our planet than any other person. But he's also seen it really since, you know, the late 40s, early 50s. And really our planet, when David started filming, most of the natural world was intact and it was pretty pristine.
2016. Uh, so he's seen the whole transition to where we are now. So we call the film his witness statement. And um, it's, it's basically David taking us through his life, how things have changed and how we've almost now hit rock bottom. But the last part of the film is, okay, how do we get out of it? And it's David's vision for the way forward. I think we all believe we can still get out of it. David certainly does, but we have to take action now. And, and, and that's the reason for that film. I've, I've seen and heard him speaking recently and, and you can you can hear the, the sort of the heartbreak because like you say, he's, he's watched this whole thing and uh, hopefully we have reached rock bottom now. How do you go about getting that message into television programming, which first and foremost is meant to entertain as well as inform without beating the audience over the head with it, particularly now when we're hearing from commissioning editors that audience need escapism because life's so difficult in so many other ways. Well, on the Our Planet series, where, where we first tackled this, what we tried to do is we, we, we just set out a series that was largely just wildlife stories, but it was habitat by habitat. And the first thing that people really don't like about environmental stories, if you just give them too much confusion, too much doom and gloom, all sorts of ways. So we, 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 we took each habitat. We said, there's one major thing that is a problem for this place because the way it works. So with open grasslands, it's space. And then the whole narrative is about why wild animals need space. And you you see see that. But only once and twice would we do a pullout, say, in North America and pull back and see how the, the, the old landscape of the bison of North America is now just a satellite view of endless fields. And and so you, you kind of bring people to a, a place in, in a very, very confined way and um, a careful way. The other thing we worked out on that series was that people, if you raise these questions, they, they don't want to be left with questions. So we created an online, we called it a halo, ourplanet.com, an online world where you could see lots more films, giving you lots more information and detail. And again, always solution orientated. We've got these problems, but we fix them like this. I guess the other question is, so, so but when we've come to say doing the David Attenborough film, clearly when you've got a man of, of David's stature and history, just telling his story, we think is big enough to reach a huge audience. And, uh, you know, the film is a compelling story. And if it's a compelling story, you can still take people to difficult places. But again, we we just feel that we our films also have to be aspirational. I get very, very disturbed by people who just think the world, you know, there's nothing we can do. Humans are very inventive, very clever. We just need to concentrate on what the big issues are, tell people what the big issues are, and say, this is how you fix them. Then we get out of this mess. It used to be that the environmental message sort of got tagged on in 10 minutes at the end like here's 50 minutes of programming and then the 10 minutes at the end here's a seagull we found with all this plastic that it's eaten or there was one episode in a series of six which was the environmental episode it seems that you've now you have it's interwoven within the story is that a deliberate move to keep the audience engaged yeah absolutely i think i think now the environmental crisis is part and parcel of every everyone's story isn't it so when you're telling a story about a natural habitat it 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 seems wrong that it, it isn't integrated into it as part and parcel of, of that story. I think there were you're, you were very accurate in saying it used to be sort of tagged on the end. Also, what people used to do, which I think is destructive, is just say at the end, well, you've seen this lovely place. Oh, by the way, it is going up in flames and leave you with no sense of, well, what do you do about it going up in flames? That's not helpful. So what you have to say is, yes, it's going up in flames. 
and this is how you put the fire out. And so always give people a, a kind of a positive way forward towards the solutions. Is there a fear that that message will either get lost or be ignored or go down the priority list during the COVID pandemic because people will be like, I've got enough to worry about over here, mate. You know, that, that can wait. Yeah, it's a very good question. I, I think it falls into two answers. I think I think the one thing about um, COVID-19 is is shown actually how vulnerable society is to natural forces. Okay, it's a virus, but it's a virus that has, has jumped into humanity from a wild animal because of the way we unnaturally now come into contact with animals we should never be coming into contact with. So there is a, a kind of a link between the destruction of the natural world and what has brought our civilization to a grinding halt. I think before COVID-19, it was very hard to tell people, look, if climate change carries on down the road, we're going to hit serious road bumps. I mean, very serious. And and now people kind of know what a serious road bump, well, actually, this is a relatively small one in the scheme of things, but they know now what, what it what it looks like. So I think there is an awareness that we don't live in a bubble free from everything that's going on in the world outside us. I think there's also awareness now that if you're going to solve these things, it's a global approach. You can't do it country by country. It's not just not going to work. So, so all of that plays into actually, I think, helping us deal with the environmental crisis that we actually face. But yeah, there's been a lot of bad news. And, and I think people are sort of desperate to um, probably to move on and and um, next year, we've got two really, really important global conferences, one about the future of biodiversity, one about the future of climate. And um, our job as journalists is to make sure that that is very much kind of raised in the public agenda. And um, cutting through COVID is is my top priority. You mentioned that you've been uh, doing stuff for, for Davos uh, and IMF and things like that. You've also been producing a lot of sort of shorter form content for, for social media, perhaps having started out initially thinking you were going to be a documentary producer why has the company gone off in these or broadened in these different directions I, th- I, th- I think it was this this sort of happened when when we created the our planet series it, it, it was this really um, Alistair Fothergill and I who started the company we, we we'd made loads of landmark shows before in our BBC days and after and we we always felt that we, we we could raise these questions but we could never give enough answers and enough detail and so we we said we have to create this kind of halo of content around and we also wanted to reach as many people of different demographics different ages and what and what have you so we turned to experts in our team who are more familiar with social media and how to make it work and said right create this content cut it up and repurpose it in different ways to reach different audiences and WWF were incredibly helpful in that too and um, it was really enlightening we think that we've actually reached far far more people than we would with the general message and um, it's something that we're continuing to do what's the difference working for netflix as opposed to working for the bbc or a broadcaster like the bbc well we had a really really good experience with netflix um we we were one of the first i think we're the first major wildlife series that they commissioned and um it's funny to think this was only about six years ago they were they were just so much smaller but they their philosophy then and and it's continued to this to, to this day was to say okay guys we've got you to make this show you're the experts we're very light touch in terms of how we want you to make the show you want to make and that was very liberating and we enjoyed that process and they stayed true to their word 
where they did get involved was incredibly helpful. And um, so it was a real partnership experience. And um, I, I think the interesting thing with Netflix as well is, is that they are there to just please their subscribers. So they're, they're, they're not politically constrained in any way. They don't carry advertising. They don't have a charter. They don't have any, any, anything. So so it's, it's a very interesting, liberated space to do a, a new type series, which is about often a controversial subject like the destruction of of the environment. So yeah, it was a positive experience. Is it a shame in any way that that series like this exist now on a subscription platform rather than a, a public broadcaster? Or is it you know is it not mutually exclusive? Or is it, is it that Netflix are the only people the only game in town that can afford the budgets for for these things now? And and is that a shame if you if you see what I mean? No, I mean we we still as a company we're still making series for the BBC. Um, our next big series is going out on, on the BBC. We're making series for Netflix and, and we've done each films with Disney. And, and so our, our feeling is let's make a lot of content in different places. And absolutely, BBC series are still incredibly important and reach, you know, vast audiences. Netflix reaches a different probably set of audiences. Interesting, often the demographic of Netflix, uh, certainly in this country, is a lot younger than, say, the demographic on, on the BBC. So, so, so you're you're sometimes reaching a different a different audience. So, I think there's space for for everyone, and uh, and um, the plurality, I think, of natural history getting into all sorts of different platforms is crucial in the mission to try to stop its destruction. Do you, do you have any? I don't know if fears are the right way or right word or, or concerns because you've got a huge BBC background and just seems that public service broadcasting while it's proved its worth certainly during this pandemic it's coming under more pressure politically and financially than than really ever before do you have sort of fears and concerns for its future yeah i think everyone does and um i think the the bbc has always been the standard that has driven the quality of television over over so 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 long and 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 and, and if there's anything that you know a single thing that it has done it is it has done that and and that has affected the whole global media. So for it to vanish is a disaster. There's no doubt in my mind about about that. Absolutely, though, you look at the the way it's funded, it's very, very challenging. And and, um, it's a funding model that was absolutely brilliant for the first 70 years of the BBC's history. But now it's being it seems like the wrong model now for the modern world. So so there are huge things for Tim Davey to think through in terms of how he's going to work it out. I very much believe Tim Davey is the guy who, if anyone's going to work it out, he will. But it's challenging. But that there has to be a way forward um, because the BBC has to stay. And the audience, you, you, there was that saying, you, you never know what you miss until it's gone. And I think the BBC is so taken for granted. But boy, if you t- took it away, people would miss it does a subscription model work for the bbc or is it because like you say the license fee is challenging it's, i mean it's very difficult to uh, ask to pass to trade i guess yeah it, it's so hard to um so you get into sub- subscription that drives you down probably elitism that's not the bbc shouldn't be the bbc it's just, so it's um there's a whole lot of things to to keep it as a service for all across both radio and television i think you need some kind of taxation whatever you want to call it. (laughs) 
Can we talk about filming during the current COVID restrictions? And obviously the UK has, has got a whole load of new restrictions to get its head around this week, which we're all delighted about. How is uh, how is being a production company and trying to produce television, how's it been this year and, and moving forward into next year? Well, this year as a company, we've been fine. Um, we found that, like a lot of companies, that working from home is very effective in the production role. And I think that'll change us forever. We, we were fortunate that one of the series we're making is based in Britain so we could get on with that and and um, a lot of if you're filming um, wild places in Britain when there's no one in them uh, it's it's pretty unique occasion so so that was good we've also continued filming around the world because we've got a lot of very talented wildlife filmmakers cameramen camera women who are based in live in Australia America and so on and so forth so they've been able to carry on in their territories so that has been productive but um we get to the point that when yeah you want to travel again and um, this summer we started traveling again and we started to get the machine going I think our darkest moment is going to be really how does this winter play out and I, I guess we're all together in this aren't, aren't we anyone who's in business must have looked at the, the second wave and the consequences of it how are we going to get through that and I think it's going to be amazingly challenging but we'll just we'll just box and cocks and see how we get on Coming into this interview I was, I was torn on natural history either being absolutely perfect for these times because it can just be one or possibly two guys out filming in the middle of nowhere which is just absolutely perfect for social distancing but then also like few other genres it really relies on international travel and and going to these remote places so is it the perfect genre for our time or is it is it nightmare well you're absolutely right that in terms of we operate with few people in remote places in that respect it's it's perfect i mean for big dramas with sets and everything it's been an utter nightmare for them so for us no it hasn't had had that it's it is it's the travel restrictions uh, and and um, it's just, you know, that you just can't get into places that we need to. And filming natural history, you, you, obviously you have to get to the place where the animal lives, but you probably have to get there at the moment when the animal does something really interesting because uh, they're often seasonal. So um, you're very kind of time and location dependent. And, and that's the bit that is, we're, we're finding challenging. Is it lo- is, is local crews like plan A, B and C to get around that? Yeah, there's the great local crews in some places and in other places that there aren't and 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 so um that's a wake-up call for us i think going going forward um the world i mean let's face it this isn't going to be the last pandemic um they're they're spinning off zoonotic diseases are spinning off at a huge rate because of the environmental crisis so you know we're going to have to learn to live with these kind of things and and one of the things is probably to have more talent based around the world you mentioned where the virus has come from and and why are you tempted as a company to to go into that in a in a documentary form the wildlife link or are broadcasters sort of guiding you away and saying we don't want covid content you know the audience is is tired of it it's interesting we we been working up ideas around it and and um, it'll certainly come into some of the programs we're actually making right now because it is such an important story I think the story we want to explain to people is that as you denigrate the natural world, you lose all the historic services it used to give you. And those services, although we haven't valued them commercially, are absolutely essential, whether it be carbon sumps or protection against diseases and pests because of the effect biodiversity has on controlling these things. There's a a whole range. And I always say that that, that, that people talk a lot about climate change, but um, they're 
two horsemen of the apocalypse. One is climate, carbon, basically. The other is the destruction of nature, which is the thing that actually keeps the world in balance. And if you stop eroding that, the world goes out of balance. And what we're experiencing right now, sitting in our rooms having this chat, is the world going out of balance. Keith Scully from Silverback Films. Emergency Call is an observational documentary format that originated in Belgium, focusing on the call centre staff who are the first point of contact for people often in desperate situations. Having scored success for VRTEN, it's since been licensed around the world by Dutch format distributor Lineup Industries and a US version premiered this week on broadcast network ABC, produced by LA-based 8 Hours Television. The latter's co-founders, former Zodiac America's CEO Johnny Slow and Adeline Ramage Rooney, spoke to Clive Whittingham about the series, the challenges they had in terms of gaining access to the emergency services, producing during lockdown, and where their two-year-old indie goes from here. I'm Johnny Slow, I'm co-founder of 8 Hours Television with Adeline. And I'm Adeline Ramage Rooney, co-founder of 8 Hours Television with Johnny. You've recently um, done a deal for a European format, which you're taking into the US. Can you tell us about that? I mean, I've known the guys at Line Up, based in Amsterdam, Julian and Ed. I've known them for quite a few years, tried to option things from them in the past. I, I just kept in touch with them. I'd worked on something, a really sort of tricky development with them. I'd consulted with a producer here in the US for a format that they were very passionate about. So we were kind of trying to find the next thing to work on with them. And Emergency Call actually had been, been on air in Belgium, I think, for a year or so. Maybe they just uh, started season two or something like that. And I, I had seen it before, showed it to Adeline, and she kind of went, yeah, I think this is quite interesting. Let's let's investigate it more. See, we talked to our, our lawyers as well first, just to see if it'd be possible in the US. Then the Australian version, the pilot that they did there came out and we they were shown it and in that episode there is one of the call takers and helps someone uh, deliver a baby and <clears throat> that happened to me in <laughs> London uh, in 20. 20- 10. My second daughter arrived that way with the 999 operator on the end of the phone. And it just kind of, it, it sort of elicited a massive emotional reaction that I just felt. If I feel, you know, the, calling 911 on that is not that uncommon, right? You know, it's, people do it a few times in their life. Um, you're very lucky if you don't do it. And that made me, made us feel that it had broad enough appeal to be a very big show here in the US. It's quite a unique format in that the Belgian version, at least, you don't get to see the conclusion. You just you get to see you get to see and hear the bit that the call handler sees and hears, yeah. and then after the call ends, you don't find out how it ends. I can just sort of imagine commissioning editors talking about closure and conclusion. How do you get around that with with this format? That's a really interesting question, Clive, because it was we we took this out wide. We went to I think about seven or eight different potential networks for it from basic to premium cable and broadcast networks and we were we were kind of inundated with interest uh, but one of the biggest questions was how do we how do we round it out do we do reconstruction do we uh, build in an ending and it was a fascinating puzzle because part of being a 911 call taker is this relentless stories right as storytellers that's what really attracted it to us because you couldn't get more dramatic storylines and more crazy passionate you know, people on the end of the phone trying, begging for help in many cases. And part of the job of a 911 call taker is 
to deal with it in the moment, in the here and now, and they have so much technology at their disposal and so many expensive resources that they're in charge of dispatching, you know, they have to make really, really quick fire decisions. And they also have to be incredibly compassionate on the end of the phone. But their emotional investment can only be relatively limited as a call taker. Now, when you imagine the, the audience sitting watching and there's some woman who's you know, in the backseat of a car giving birth to a baby, you want to know whether that baby gets out in one piece and, and whether everyone's happy and, they, and everyone lives happily ever after. Especially on the network that we ended up going with, which was Disney. Uh, Disney owned ABC. You know, we, we, there's a real fine balance between keeping that integrity of the original format and the job that these people are doing because they typically do not get closure in this job. But the way that we figured it out um, was that we we basically in 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 call centers around the country when they do have a call that really hits home for them they typically will follow up themselves with maybe the ambulance guy or the police or the fire brigade or whoever it is that was dispatched on that call and so there was a natural ability for us to follow through to the end of those stories because we the call takers would would say in most instances i'm just going to double check on that and see what happened but we do resolve pretty much every story line in it. But we also want to reflect the fact that this isn't normal for call takers that they check up on everything and get a, a nice little ending at each thing because typically the phone just keeps ringing. It's relentless and they they are answering between you know 100 and 150 calls a day. You know it's bad enough for guys on the ground who are seeing and smelling and and uh, re- using all of their senses. But when you only have your ears, effectively, it has a very emotional resonance that that this was part of another thing that attracted Johnny and I to the format because we never show what happened what's happening physically on the other end of the line it has a kind of podcast element to this show you know and that's what makes it amazing how do you get access to that and persuade them to let you come in and film and presumably i, I don't know are you filming in one state in the the interesting thing was when we started to piece it together there is a, a wide variety of different sort of ways that cities are run in the us so uh, it depends on how it's evolved locally as to who is actually responsible for operating the emergency response so it took a bit of um we had a couple of great uh, casting people and uh, we have a fantastic attorney who just kind of like you know ground through it piece by piece and, and we end up with a long list of potential places where we could do it there's a thing in some u.s states where uh, to record a conversation you need both parties to consent in advance not every state though so we've we've in season one we've advice was to to, to avoid tr- uh, trying to do it in those states even though technically it might be possible in the future. A lot of times, again, in the US, um, 911 calls and transcripts are considered public information. You sometimes hear them transmitted on local news as part of the story, which is a very sort of uniquely American thing. And that's what encourages us in a way, because we felt that if that was the overall concept was people were used to listening to recordings of 911 calls, then you know it would seem relatively natural to make a TV show invo- involving that audio. Uh, we did a pilot first. Adeline managed to persuade the guys in Austin, Texas, to participate in that. One person in particular who uh, I spoke to, who kind of really read the idea of it, really resonated with him, and he was, you know, incredibly positive about doing it. And he kind of basically drove it through um, the the various levels of administration that had to sign it off. The fact that we had ABC 
behind us as well, I think was was extremely helpful to, you know, people felt that it was a show that actually would get a lot of attention if we made it. So I think that was that was also a very helpful factor. The the access thing was not easy, I I will say. I think with with this particular project, there were so many legal obstacles. And because you are dealing, as Donnie referenced, with 50 states with completely different rules and regulations with as far as all of this can stuff is concerned forget the pandemic you know this is pre-production before pandemic and then pandemic is throws a whole other million sets of um of challenges in how did covid change things both for the production side of things and the content the sort of calls coming in um well i'll talk about the production side first um we were literally about to start production about to go out on the road when the lockdown started and we had to change everything but the, the extraordinary thing about this show was that i mean i feel terrible saying this but Touchwood. Um, this this show has kind of almost benefited from the pandemic in a in a very weird way. I mean, obviously there's been a lot of awful repercussions, but but there have there have been some things that have happened as a consequence because we were dealing with public safety, critical infrastructure. Our conversations were with the nerve center of five different cities around the country. We were planning also to to be in New Orleans, Wasilla, Alaska. Waukesha County in Wisconsin, which is a basically a suburb of Milwaukee, Austin in Texas, and Weber County in Utah. So five very different places, you know, urban, suburban, and complete wilderness. And each with their very own kind of set of particular COVID circumstances. So in Alaska, for example, there were there were very, very few cases, have been very few cases all year, really. Whereas somewhere like New Orleans, and uh, Austin were pretty ravaged. So anyway, the fact that we were already deep, deep, deep into access and conversations and legal conversations, etc., with all of these places, we actually were able to say to ABC, who put everything else on hold, production-wise, all of their other shows, we said to them, look, we, can, we think we can make this during lockdown. We think we can formulate a plan that we can be incredibly safe, and, and but be out there and be in the field in with very minimal crews. So I believe that we were the first show, either scripted or unscripted, in production since the pandemic shutdown happened. Um, We started in May. And so initially, we actually ended up mapping out the entire production around COVID and around which places were seeing high infection rates and which places had quarantines, which states had quarantines. Fairly early on, no states were allowing in, well, not no states, but some of the states were not allowing in people from California without a quarantine. This was way early on. So right in May, we sent our very minimal crew for all of the cities to Alaska to quarantine in Alaska in a beautiful pine cabin in the woods for two weeks. And, you know, they did their pre-production in a cabin in the woods in in Alaska. And we actually cross-trained the producers to do production jobs and the production people to do producers jobs and cross-trained audio on camera and camera on audio and everything so that if someone came down 
with temperature or we had to just get them out of there if they if you know at the time testing even was was not quite up to where it is at the moment but um we 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 cross-trained everybody so that then after Alaska they could split and go to their respective places in the country and worst case scenario if we had to pull somebody out there would be someone else that could within the team within the pod in the bubble could do their job for them while we figured out a safe way of replacing that person so it was quite a, a quite a nerve-wracking time when they were initially in their quarantine in Alaska and every day we were sort of knocking off a notch on the uh, bedpost as it were to get into production and it's been an extraordinary year for TV production where we were researching full-on hazmat suits and everything to send them in and in the end we we ended up going with masks and gloves and we our whole crew has been tested pretty much twice twice or three times weekly but daily temperature checks etc and we we kind of think that we were we were pretty pioneering in terms of protocols because as I say when the eventual sort of white papers and SAG type protocols union endorsed protocols came out here we'd already been doing more than them for about two and a half months and and ours were you know sort of gold standard because we'd been working with emergency medical services and doctors on the ground and um, real specialists in public safety so two of the trends that this show kind of speak to that we're we're seeing as we as we talk to commissioners is number one the pandemic seems to have brought key service workers in the medical you know ambulances hospitals the people that are making this that's really on trend at the moment and people want behind the scenes stuff while at the same time the black lives matters movement has perhaps made police shows obviously live pd got cancers made police shows more challenging maybe a bit toxic your show crosses both boundaries i just wondered if you had any thoughts on on either of those trends really. yes absolutely and you know i don't think we can ever call something as hopefully shape-shifting as uh, black lives matter a trend per se but um with this show we're seeing a different side to what people are paying for with their tax money and without getting political about it really i think pe- this is an overlooked part of public safety public health that people are blissfully thankfully unaware of until they maybe need it the most at the the most hideous moment in their lives and what we've seen on the ground in these places is not in any way shape or form judgmental or partisan or anything they are just people who want to help it's obviously very timely with both of the things that you mentioned with covid with all of the disruption in the us that's been been going on and civil unrest and that has fed through into the show you know the storylines we we were we were kind of concerned at the beginning of production that in lockdown you know nobody's going to be going out there won't be any car accidents there won't be the same volume of emergency calls but I mean, I, I hate to say that I'm happy to say that this, this, the call volume stayed the same, but it, it effectively did. But there was definitely a shift in the types of calls because if you change society as a whole, which basically we have recently, and that then has a massive impact on the types of 911 calls that have been received. So, you know, uh, there, there definitely has been an increase in domestic violence. We've seen about a 20% increase in domestic violence 911 calls in the States, which is a hell 
hell of a lot when when you think about it in just you know incremental terms. But there's also been randomly you know upturns in other things like cooking at home and baking, and everyone t- teaching themselves how to do sourdough bread, for example, has actually resulted in more domestic oh, yeah. cooking accidents. You know, it's, it's been a crazy time. What's uh, what's next for you guys? Where does the company go from here? When we set the company up, you know, we're kind of I said to Adeline, you know, and Adeline comes from a sort of originally sort of British producing background and you know in that community there is a little bit of kind of like prejudice about working with other people's formats it's kind of like you know oh you know you can't come up with your own ideas and I, yeah. I think that we can but I think that when you're starting out a company particularly somewhere as transactional as the US being able to work with formats and close those deals is absolutely crucial part of it if you just look to the the people that have been really successful in US unscripted television they all now adapt formats and I would say that Mark Burnett is probably the one you would point to like say you know if you want to make build a successful unscripted tv production company it has to be one of the strings to your, to your bow and, and also we know how hard it is to create something that's good right so if we would sort of say our development efforts are going to ignore everything that everyone else in the world is doing right and we're just going to create our own ideas right we're just going to limit our own uh, possibilities significantly and uh, so i think there is that that element to wanting to be working in the production phase with content and with stories and with shows that have really great DNA really sort of increases your chance in my experience of selling a show and it, it once it's up and running it increases your chance of getting from the very very difficult phase that we're in right now to a to you know to something that is known and accepted by by an audience it's taken two and a half years to get to this point it'll probably take more than a year to get to the next step it's not an easy road uh, and so when you set off on that path you have to be very confident that you're setting off for something that's got a, a high chance of, of actually making it to air. We have a couple of other things that we're getting ready to take out there. Um, we are doing some of our own development as well. But, you know, the format business is really interesting to us. As Johnny referenced, that the speed at which you can get it up and running is in its favor. And also, I, I just really enjoy the challenge of adaptation. It's not everyone that can do it. And it's always such a puzzle to get it right that we really enjoy that challenge almost as much, if not more, than doing our own development we're hoping that um you know being able to talk about this and and the story of how it got to where it is right now that will you know kind of re-energize a lot of the conversations we've had with we tend to kind of really sort of resonate with companies like lineup actually which are they're independent themselves they represent indies for the most part i think there is a sort of sense that in the last few years there have been you know there's been a new wave of small European indies that have been started by people that work for big groups and then for one reason or another either left or uh, got merged out of a job or something and when they hit the ground with their new companies their first pitch is often the thing that they've been meaning to make for a lot, a lot of years right this is the show that I wanted to really wanted to get away they're the people we want to be in business with because they're so passionate about the idea it's taken years to form the idea so it's often and I you know sort of highly developed and they are normally a if they're the right person they're able they've got a contact base which means they have people on the broadcast and cable network side who are really rooting for them so they've got a very high chance of, of selling something so that's that's the kind of for us that's the kind of a path that under normal circumstances you know we'd be about to hit the road do a kind of European tour and you know actually visit people not just in Cannes but you know in the cities where they're based and that's how we would normally 
normally, you know, sort of capitalize on a, on a moment like this. But, you know, we just um, have to do it a different way. And actually, we can probably hit it faster at this point because people are prepared to, you know, do, you know, a converse, an initial conversation about format on a Zoom call and show us some footage. Like YouTube was invented in 2006. You know, before that, it was actually really difficult to show someone a tape without sending a DVD in the mail. Do you like over the last 15 years, the, the way that producers can collaborate in different countries has absolutely changed and you know that has also seen the big european-based independent groups that were also invented at a time where it was difficult for producers to find out what was going on in other countries fast forward to now that's not the case anymore this adlan i use so many tools that just facilitate the sharing of information like i was talking about watching a google sheet get filled out by producers in different states live right this is like a sort of something that you know you just couldn't even have contemplated and it means that as a small independent company we can now operate and deliver everything that a bigger independent group could have operated 10-15 years ago with just the two of us and you know with a small team here in here in LA um, and I think that you know that's quite exciting is that we've been working on that plan for a while and we can really feel that off the back of this we've got a chance of making it to the next step. Johnny Slow and Adeline Ramage Rooney That's all for this episode. There'll be more from the podcast tomorrow. But in the meantime, stay safe and stay up to date with all the latest industry developments by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 